Hello there, pinheads. This is Triumph the Insult Dog, and you're listening to Norman Shaggy on the Topcast, a popular program among fat 40-year-old men with no sex lives. Kind of like Norman Shaggy. Oh, and don't forget to download episode 42, featuring my cousin, Python Angelou. Until next time, see you later, pin losers. Celebrity voice impersonated. You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. another episode of TopCast, the pinball internet radio show. And tonight we have a designer that started work at Bally in 1981, and then later moved to Williams Bally, and then finally to Data East slash Sega as a game designer. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. I'd like to welcome Ward Pemberton to TopCast tonight. Ward designed some really great games, including Bally Fathom in 1981, BMX, Hard Body, Dungeons and & Dragons, and then when Williams bought Bally in the late 80s, did some designs for the Williams team, including Mousing Around, Riverboat Gambler, Gilligan's Island, and then worked for Sega slash Data East designing GoldenEye. All right, so let's give Ward Pemberton a call right now on the phone and talk to him about his game designing career. Hello. Hey, Ward. Clay. How you doing? Okay, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So, you ready? I guess so. All right, so tell me, like, how you your first memories of pinball or how you got into pinball. I mean, you're, you became a pinball designer. That's what, a, you know, a lot of people that are into pinball really want to be. You know, how did you get there, and where did you come from, and how did it start? Okay, let me tell you. Uh, um, my dad worked for Bally Manufacturing for, I think, over 26 years. And uh, out of high school, or in high school, I ended up taking a drafting class. And uh, out of high school... My dad was able to get me a job working for Norm Clark, who was in charge of all the game designers over there at, at Bally. And uh, what happened was uh, I was working with the other game designers as a, a lab tech, building their uh, designs, putting their play fields together. And then after a uh, couple years, Norm Clark gave me a shot at designing a pinball machine, and Fathom was my first game. So what year did you start working at Bally? Uh, I believe it was right out of high school, which would be about 78, 78, 79. So you were only two years' worth of underpinning under, uh, work, and then they were already giving you designer duties. Well, what I was doing is designing on my own time. If, if the game designers had something for me to do, I'd be working for them. And then uh, I was able to do stuff when they were had some downtime. So was Fathom one of those ones you kind of designed on your own, or did they say, do a game? Yeah, Fathom was actually what it does. is Back in them times, um, you would almost design a play field, and then you would put a theme to it. Okay, you'd work on your shots and your different target areas and 
you know, position your bumpers, your flippers, all that stuff. And then if the game played well, you would then uh, put the uh, rules and regulations and your, your game theme together. And actually Fathom, um, I designed a play field, but actually Fathom, I believe Greg Ferris came up with the uh, Fathom uh, theme. Right, he was your artist for that game, right? My artist, and I believe he came up with the theme. So uh, he came up with that cartoon brochure and everything. Did you did you not really care what the theme was? You know what? Um, no, not necessarily. He ran it past me, and I said, "Wow, that's kind of cool," you know. Um, but that's one of the things you got to sell a marketing department, and and uh, Greg was uh, very instrumental with a lot of those. Uh, uh, game ideas. He was a pretty sharp guy and a great artist, you know. Now, did you have your choice of other artists? Like, could have you had Dave Christensen or Paul Ferris or any of those guys? You know what? At the time, if I ain't mistaken, I think uh, Paul Ferris was in charge of the art department, and Greg was working for him at the time Fathom was done. And, uh, no, I really didn't have a choice. Actually, at that time, I was still considered in... Uh, associate designer like a junior designer so now how did you get i mean fathoms you know it's got multi-ball it's got speech it's got you know the great graphics it's like a total pinball package i mean how did how did you pull that off for your first game um you know what talking with the other game designers which was gary gayton and uh jim patla um who else was over there i think uh george christian Greg Kamik were over there at the time, and if I'm mistaken, I don't know if Claude was over there yet, Claude Fernandez or not, but uh, actually uh, Gary Gayton and uh, and Jim Patla were always uh, very instrumental to me and taught me how to design play fields, where when you're uh, actually designing a play field, your, your ball always, you've got to, you know, anticipate the, uh, the reflection off the targets, and if you're hitting a... Uh, um, are you there? Yeah, no, I'm listening. Yeah, if you're hitting a shot into a scoop, you want to try to always pick up a radius. You know, you don't want any flat spots because then you're going to get that big clank. Wait, 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 what do you mean by flat spots? What's that? What do you mean by flat spots? Well, you always want to try, since the ball's got a nice round curvature to it, of course, you always want to try to hit a radius, you know, and that'll make that smooth flow transaction with the balls. So, and if you're hitting a target, you always know that if you got your target angled in a certain, you know, angle, that how it's going to deflect off of those targets. So, are you saying that you don't want to like aim at or, or position a target so that it's it's directly parallel to the player? Right, because it's just going to come right back at you too quick, too. You know. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And even if you notice the uh, the return lanes on Fathom. How you got it where it scoops in and you get a nice flow back to the flipper. Right. You know, some of the old games, you'd have it where it'd go straight down, stop, and then kind of roll to the flipper. I always like to have it where you could almost have like constant flow, you know. Hmm. Hmm. And is that something that like the, the, you know, the old timers like Norm Clark and that, or is this just something that you picked up on your own? Well, you know what, um, yeah, just from experience of playing and, and liking the way, I, I always loved the way certain play fields flowed. And uh, a lot of people, I don't know, when all the games I've done, they said, yeah, it looks like one of your games will work because, you know, 
the play field flows nice. It's got nice, uh, I don't know, good flow. Yeah, <laughs> good kinetics. Good kinetics. That's what yeah. I call it. Well, now, when, how far back were you involved with pinball? I mean, did you remember playing pinball when you were a kid? Yeah, my dad years ago. Um, like I said, he worked for Bally for over over 26 years. I don't know exactly how many years, um, but uh, we got lucky. Once in a while, he was able to bring home a prototype game, and we'd have it in the basement, and we could flip around on it. Actually, um, one of my favorite games that he was able to bring home was, uh, I think it was 4 million B.C., Cool game. One of my favorites. Yeah, with the zipper flippers, and mm-hmm. it was a it was a great game. So, did you ever go out to the arcades or anything, or is this always like Dad brought home a game and you got to play it? Right. I never went to the arcades. I got lucky when I was a kid. If my dad took me in on a Saturday over to Bally and I could go into their arcade, they'd have a place where they'd show their their new games, and we could flip around while he was upstairs working. Hmm. Hmm. Now, did your dad retire from Bally? Yes, he did. He did. He retired, uh, I want to say back in 80, I want to say 86 maybe. What, was he mostly involved with pinball or everything? My mom was uh, deathly ill with uh, cancer, and uh, he ended up uh, leaving early so he could spend some uh, time with her. So. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, it's all right. You know, it's part of life. We had We had a good life. Now, was he mostly involved with pinball or just everything? My dad was, uh, at one time, he was in charge of the mechanical engineering department. Huh. Now, what did he, um, what did he think of the transition from, like, electromechanical to solid state, and what did you think about that? Uh, well, uh, I thought it was great because everything seemed to be, you know, more lights and whistles, and the flippers were stronger, and, you know, the, uh, the displays were... Easier to look at, uh, you know, you didn't hear that clunk, 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 and, um, I don't know, I guess because, um, uh, you know, everything was easier to wire, and, uh, you could actually start putting more money into the machine, and it'd be more appealing to everybody, and, I mean, you know, I came on pretty much, uh, after the electric mechanical stage, so, but just, uh, I thought it was a, a great, great transition. Now, was there any feature that you wanted in Fathom that you you couldn't justify for for you know for cost reasons that got costed out? You know what? It's hard to remember back in them days, but uh, let's see. I don't think so. I think that was pretty much. Uh, it was pretty much. Uh, you know what? I always try to do. I always try to get that zipper flipper feature in, but. I don't think I tried to get it in the fathom. I just, I always thought that was a, a pretty cool feature. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Very cool. Now, who, I mean, the, the voice, the voice in that for, for the game, you know, was there any stories behind that, you know, how that was developed or who did it or anything like that? You know what, I can, there, there was a female voice in there, wasn't there? Mm-hmm, yep. Yeah. Um, let's see. You know what? I don't even remember all these people that did the sounds. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think Neil Falkner was the programmer at the time for Fab. I think Neil was the programmer, and I think somebody named Chris something was the was the sound guy, and I can't even remember his last name. But uh, so you didn't have to have much interaction with them. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I, there's no doubt about it. There was interaction. Every pinball game that I did, okay, was based on uh, me as the game designer, um, the artist, the mechanical engineer, the programmer, and and the sound guy. So was that five five different guys mm -hmm. that really had a lot of input in the games? Hmm. You no, know, you talk to a lot of other game designers, and they like to take the credit for everything, but uh, <laughs> yeah. it really isn't that way. Right. You need a lot of help from a lot of different people, and then you need your your sales and your marketing people to make it sell a lot. You know. Were they pretty happy, and were you pretty happy with the sales on Fathom? You know what? Again, at that time, like you know what, I, I want to think that it was about thirty-five hundred. Is that right? right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, at that time, that was a good sale. You know, there wasn't many games doing much more at that time. Um, we got uh, we got uh, I don't know. I want to say. Uh, Pimped a little bit with the next game that I did, but it's all timing, you know. It's, that pinball industry's got its ups and its downs. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I got great reviews from Fathom. Uh, Roger Sharp, you know, gave me a great review, and I don't know, was it Playmaker? Is that the magazine? Right. Yeah. So it was an exciting time in my life, you know. Now, you know, recently they've reproduced the Fathom Playfield in the back class. And the uh, and the flat plastics for the playfield. Did they did they contact you at all, or did you even know about this? And I mean, do you have any feelings? Now, who would have reproduced it? Well, they um, there's Bally obviously still owns the rights to all that stuff, and they licensed it out. And there was a um, I think some guys in Canada, uh, Classic Playfield Reproductions, I believe, were the people that did that playfield, and they probably did the plastics in the back glass too. I mean, did you did you keep a fathom? How long ago they do that, you know? Yeah, maybe uh, two years ago. Wow, it'd be nice to see one of those games. So you didn't you didn't get to keep a fathom after you designed one? No, at that time um, it wasn't. See, I didn't have a contract at that time. I did fathom, and uh, after the contracts came into play, and that was part of pretty much any game designer's contract, they'd always want at least one game for their home. You know? mm. But no, never got one. Huh. So, I mean, was that would have that been a big deal to get one? Um, you know what? At that time, the the industry was at a low, so I guess every game that they made, they really wanted to try to sell. You know, so I mean, it would have been a big thing for them to give it to me, I guess, because they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> now, didn't you? So your dad was working there, you were working there, and I heard that you had like a sister that worked at Bally too. But you know what? I did. I had a sister. I had a brother. Um, my sister did work there before me, and I don't know what she actually did. I think she might have worked. Let me think. I don't know who she worked for, but she was more in the uh, office area, you know. Right. Right. So it, was that kind of weird having the whole family there? No, it was pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> It was pretty nice. I actually met my wife at Bally. Really? So, I mean, I married somebody from Bally, too, then, you know? It's a good time for you, then. Oh, yeah. A lot of good memories. Bally was a very good company to work for. Okay, so now, after Fathom, the next game you designed was, what, BMX. What? Tell me about that one. BMX, I was real excited about, you know? And uh, 
again, this was a, a play field that I designed, and then uh, I put the uh, the new outlines in them. They were a unique style where you have the extra flipper button on the side mm-hmm. with a piece of spring steel that when you press the button it would close and the ball would return right to the flipper. So there was only one lane on each side, and it was either and it was always an out lane unless you pressed this button that would bring it right back to the flipper. So theoretically, if you were very good with your fingers, the only way to lose the ball would be down the middle between the flippers. Right. Right. Now, were you a BMX fan? Um, no. And actually, that was another Greg Ferris idea. The artist again, Greg Ferris. Hmm. Did you have the exact same team as Fathom who work on BMX? You know what? I don't remember. I don't remember. I know Greg did the artwork, I believe. Yep, Greg did it. Yep. Okay. Um, and I don't know who else did any of the other any of the other activities. Yeah, it it's could be very likely that it could have been the same guy that did the uh, programming, um, but I I don't know for sure. Now, at this time, were you considered an official designer? No, nope. I was still a. Uh, Still wasn't under contract, so I was still a junior or associate designer. Okay. Okay. Were you happy with how BMX came out? Yes, I was very happy with it. Okay, but it didn't sell all that well. Two level, you know, two level play field. Right. Right. And so that was my first two level play field. Um, I thought it looked great. You know. But it just didn't sell for some reason. Well, it, again, that was the time. I think we only did 350 of them. Yeah, I got 400, but yeah, right in there. Yeah. So that was it. And actually, um, at the time, right when I got laid off before they even went into production with that, it was just a very, very um, downtime at Bally. And I wasn't under contract, so we weren't losing anything getting rid of me. And... Um, like I said, they didn't make too many games. So, um, But I had a couple guys there that felt really bad that I was laid off. Jim Pat was one of them. So um, what, the, what year was that? Let me see. And the 82. Yeah, BMX was in 82. So I got laid off uh, shortly after that. And um, what did I do? You know what I did? I worked out for a while and... Uh, I got to try it with the White Sox in 83. What? You played for the White Sox? With the White Sox. You, you played for the White Sox? Well, they signed me up, and I went down to spring training, Sarasota there, and uh, got released. Never never officially made the roster. I think I was only down there for about three weeks. Um, but it was uh, another exciting time in my life. You know, I had a shot. I had a shot at the White Sox. <laughs> now, how did you slide into that? Well, you know what? I played baseball pretty much all my life. And then uh, right out of high school, I kind of quit baseball. So I quit for, it must have been um, almost four years. And then I was, I was a pretty big guy, six foot four, 210 pounds. And I was always a pitcher, so I had some pretty good velocity. I was being clocked about 90 miles an hour back at that time. And that's after being off of baseball for three and a half, four years. So uh, my dad actually... Um, wrote letters to all the baseball organizations and we got a response from pretty much uh, actually quite a few of them but the White Sox actually um, 
set up a personal tryout for me down at the uh, the amphitheater that year and went down there and I ended up throwing with uh, Dennis Lamp and Steve Trout and and um, the uh, the scout, you know, he told me, he says, Boris, he says, your, uh, your arm strength is great. Your mechanics need some work. He says, uh, um, if you want to come out, uh, you know, the next couple weeks and, and let me work with you, he says, I'll make a decision if we can sign you and send you down to spring training. So that's what I did. Huh. So I worked, worked with him for a couple weeks, and after that, he signed me and sent me down to spring training. Huh. So that's how that all ironed out. <laughs> well, now you got back into Bally a few years later. How did that happen? I sure did. Jim Patlett gave me a call back in 86, I think. And uh, he says, Ward, he says, I'm in charge of the designers, the game designers. He says, what do you think about coming back and working for me? You know? He says, uh, I really like the way BMX turned out. and We didn't make too many of them. I'd like you to come back and... Uh, you know, see what you could do for me. And when I came back, he says he wanted me to, to redo BMX, change it a little bit, and that's what I did. And uh, that's when uh, I actually, I think it was our marketing department and uh, Greg Ferris, again, okay, uh, and I think Greg Ferris was in charge of the art department at that time now, and uh, came up with Hard Body. With, uh, since Bally was into their health and fitness now, and uh, Rachel McGlish signed with uh, the fitness department that they wanted to do a, a pinball machine for that. Hmm. And sure enough, uh, that's what we did. And we changed hard body a little bit and made, I mean, we changed BMX a little bit and made it hard body. And now that sold pretty decent, about 2,000 units. You know what, I think that's what it did do. I think that's what it did do. Um... It was okay for a Bally run, you know. But now, now was this Bally mid? This is Bally Midway, right? This is well, yes, Bally Midway, correct. Okay. Correct. But not Williams. No, this was still Bally. Williams didn't buy us yet. Right. Right. Okay. Was there anything on Hard Body that you know you got costed out of that you know any kind of features or anything that you wanted in? Because it was, uh, that was, you're right, they were always looking at the cost to see what they could do because how many they had to sell in order to make a profit. Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. I know they're always worried about the inline drop targets costing so much money. Um, and drop targets. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, that, that is true. I mean, if you look at hard body, you'll see all the stand-up targets. Um, I know the four bank was probably a drop target unit. Um, see, I always loved drop targets. I thought drop targets were better than just stand-up targets. Oh, yeah. You got that visual effect. Yeah, yeah, and, of course. Yeah. yeah, now that you mentioned it, I'm sure that there was some uh, drop target units taken out of there. Now, was there um, was the design principles or concepts or way that you did things any different when you came back in you know, 86, 87, compared to when you were doing it in 91, 92? No, not really. Not really. It was, uh, like I said, with hard body, it was kind of easy because we were kind of redoing BMX. Um, let's see. The game after that, you want to talk about that one or you want to stay on hard body? 
No, let's go to that. That's uh, the Dungeons and Dragons, right? It was the Dungeons and Dragons, correct. Okay. Now, you know, the guy that invented that game, he just died. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I heard he just passed away on the news. I was surprised to hear that, you know? Now, did you have to get a license for that, or did you guys just use the name? No, that was Bally. Bally did get a license for that. There was some kind of contractual agreement between uh, uh, the owner of the Dungeons & Dragons rights. And did you ever have to talk to the guy or anything? Not me personally. I'm sure that was our uh, marketing department or, or uh, whoever has to do with the contracts there. Hmm. Okay. Now, yeah, tell me some more about that game. Well, that's another one that used to have more drop targets, but it had to be taken out. Cost effectiveness. Um, well, let's see. I think the I think there was a bell tower in that thing, and I think we used to have drop targets up on the ramp that had to come out. Um, you know what? I don't even remember most of the rules for that. Just know that there was a big flame in the center, and that was how you were generating bonus by uh, building up the flame. Um. So how long did it take you to design Dungeons and Dragons? You know, just about every game takes about a year. It took about a year for me. And were they okay? Was management okay with that? Oh yeah, that's why they had all these different game designers. That's why they had all these give. And even in the contract, it would pretty much state that you had uh, one year to do a game. I mean, sometimes you were able to, you know, push it quicker. Sometimes it take longer. But. Uh, well, a year is a pretty reasonable amount of time. Now, instead of Greg Ferris for your art, it looks like you had Pat Pac Mc, McMahon or something, or Mc, Mc, McCann? You know what? Now that you mentioned it, yeah, you're right. I mean, you're, you're refreshing my memory on a lot of things here. <laughs> so how was it like working with him? Oh, Pat's a good guy. All these guys. I tell you what, everybody I worked with at Bally was good to work with. It really was. So you didn't have any particular favorites? Um, not really, not really. I mean, you know what, when you're working with somebody, you, you grow closer with them because you know that uh, uh, for a successful project, you really got to work well together, you know? Mm-hmm. You want them to do their best for you, and you're going to do the best for them, you know? And uh, when they would give you suggestions, you'd actually listen to them, and sometimes you'd use them, you know? Right, right. Smart thing to do. Yeah. Now, who was? Do you remember who the programmer was? Dungeons and Dragons. I'm not sure. I want to say. I want to say Neil. I want to say Neil Faulkner, but I'm not sure. Now, do you keep in touch with any of these people anymore? No. Nope. No. 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 I mean, if I see somebody, we'll say hello and everybody, but. Yeah, no, we're not real. Everybody's seem to go on their own separate way when they left pinball. Right, right. Now, about this time, Bally was getting acquired by by Williams. I mean, tell me about that transition because you you slid over to the Bally Williams teams. Yeah, I slid over, but they didn't take me on right away as a game designer. They took me on as a tech. They took me on as a technician to help the game designers again build the prototypes. Hmm. And so now, how did you transition from that to a designer? Yeah, after I was over there, I uh, met with Ken Fidesna and told him I wasn't very happy because I really wanted an opportunity to continue to design games. And that's when uh, 
he let me go ahead and do mousing around. Hmm. And how did that go? I mean, now you've got a different environment with, I imagine, different team, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was definitely a, uh, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to say difficult, but, uh, it was a transaction that wasn't looking forward to, you know, um, because it's like starting a new, new company and you already feel like you're imposing on a lot of these designers' territory that have already been established over there. You know, they don't want you to be successful. They really don't. Huh. You know, uh, you're going over there. So you could feel a little bit of tension between the different designers from, um, Williams and Bally. And you know what? I think there always was, even when we weren't working underneath the same roof. We never wanted to see each other do well, I'm sure. You know, that was our competition. We didn't want Belly to, or Williams to be successful when we were Bally, and, and I'm sure Williams didn't want Bally to be successful, you know. Hmm. So looking back on it, do you think it was a bad decision for Williams to take all the Bally guys over? Um, not at all, because I think what they were doing is I think, in my opinion, I think William was technically buying the Bally name figured they could get a bigger uh distribute you know patient out there right where they could distribute more games in quantity and and they probably accomplished it for a while but then people realized that guess what the ballet game is the same as the williams game now so let's just buy the best one because they were always releasing games against each other you know even though they own both because i think when i did mousing around what was i up against on the williams side Oh, Elvira and the Party Monsters or something? Okay, if that's the date, well, that was a Dennis Nordman game. He was a Valley designer. Mm-hmm. But that's what they were trying to do now. They were trying to mix up the names, saying, well, this is going to be a Williams game, this is going to be a Valley game. And, um, so I don't know what their thinking was behind that. Hmm. Um, let's see. So they were doing like, a, you know, almost like you guys were almost like each team was in competition with the other team at the same company. Yes, you're right. If if we're if our games were released at the same time, which they were, you know, like within a month or two of each other, I think uh, what was it I did over there? I think I did Riverboat Gambler, and I think it went up against Steve Ritchie's Terminator. Or what did he do over there? It might have been his Terminator, and everybody was pretty excited about uh, you know the Riverboat Gambler thing. But then, uh, with Steve Ritchie's name and reputation, you got everybody out there, you know, trying to buy that, uh, you don't want to buy them both at the same time, you know. So, with his reputation and, uh, his, his, his good, great games that are out there, um, I think Riverboat suffered a little bit just because of that. Hmm. So, well, I mean, did they, I, were they actually like, you know, I, I interviewed another designer and he was saying that it was like almost like, it was almost like street gangs of that the teams were like, you know, really, really that much in competition against each other. Well, we, well, we, we did compete. There's no doubt about it. I mean, there was some favorite, uh, um, how do you say it? Um, some favorite mechanical guys that you'd rather have working on your game or, um, you know, certain artists, like you said, would do a, you think sometimes would do a better package. Um, but uh, I tell you what, everybody that worked for me did a good job. There's nothing bad to say about them. Yeah, it looks like you were up against Bad Cats was behind you, and uh, Whirlwind was in front of you right around mousing around. Okay. Well, 
world one was a great game by Pat Lawler. Um, that uh, what was the cat you said? Bad cats. Between me and you, I didn't care too much for bad cats, but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, you know who designed it? Um, Mark Ritchie, right? Well, it was also um, yeah, Python. Python, right? Python. That's what I think, right? Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of Python? So, you're right. He had some good stuff, but he was a little eccentric. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. A little eccentric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He sure was. I mean, uh, did you ever have to work with him? Oh yeah. 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 Did he you actually look? did the artwork for one of my uh, redemption pieces when I went to uh, GameStar? He did the artwork for Goofy Hoops. And was he good to work with? He was all right. You had to listen to him. You know, he was. Uh, he was out there, but what are you gonna do? Yeah. Him and him and Mark Ritchie were tight. Right, right. Yeah, him and Mark Ritchie were tight. Right. Okay, we're gonna take a little break of talking with Ward Pemberton and we'll be back right after this message. That's right, folks, it's Doc Pinball. Just remind you about the Rochester Game Room Show, April 11th through the 13th, 2008. We're going to have Illinois Pinball, that's right, Gene Cunningham's bringing us his prototype kingpin to our show. We have Jack from Pinball Sales bringing us the new IG4. That's right, Indiana Jones from Stern. We also have Retro Pinballs going to be coming there, the makers of that brand new King of Diamonds. We also have Marco's Specialties, a leader in parts and supplies since 1985. We have tons of vendors and tons of machines. Check us out on our website at rochestergameroomshow.com for more details. It's going to be huge. April 11th through the 13th, 2008. Deep in the forests of eastern Canada, you will find something, well, groundbreaking. And something that's very, very pinball, but something that's really, really small? Presenting classic Playfield reproductions. Two guys in their basements. We've got the passion, we've got the gear, and we've got the quality. Doing our very best to remake classic and more modern pinball replacement parts. Classic Playfield reproductions. Playfields, back glasses, plastic sets. On the web at classicplayfields.com. All right, we're back with Ward Pemberton, game designer. So now, when you were doing Riverboat Gambler, you had Funhouse behind you and what Bugs Bunny's birthday ball in front of you. And were those competing with you? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um... The Bugs Bunny one, I don't think that was a threat at all. What was the one behind me? Funhouse. Fun. What we said? Funhouse. Funhouse. Well, Funhouse was a good game. Funhouse did well for Williams, right? Oh yeah. That was Pet Lawler, right? Yeah, but your Riverboat Gambler sold uh, what over like thirty-two hundred, thirty-two hundred units. Yeah, I mean Funhouse sold like ten thousand, but I mean thirty-two hundred is still a pretty good strong sales. No, it's a good. You know what? At that time, it was probably an average run. Most of all my games were average runs. I think the biggest run I had was probably um, maybe Gilligan's Island. Was that four thousand? Yeah, exactly. Okay, that was probably my biggest run. And uh, I don't know. Let me know when you want to talk about Gilligan. Well, wait. Before we get to Gilligan, let's talk about the riverboat. Now, who came up with the riverboat gambler theme? I want to say Greg Ferris, but nah, I don't know. It might have been Greg. 
see, I don't, to be honest with you, I can't remember. I can't remember. And was that dictated to you, or did you get to pick? Work. Did you get to pick that theme? Um, we did it as a group. We did it as a group. The rules, the rules fell right in the place with this play field. It was great. Um, I want to think, you know what? I think Pat did the artwork, but I think Greg Ferris came up with, uh, with a nice theme with it again. And then we just made the rules fit. Now, I know I came up with the buttons on the, on the bottom arch there, or on the uh, molding. Right. And, uh, the roulette wheel, we, uh, we took from one of the Williams games, cause that was a feature, but we put the, uh, the roulette colors on it and played roulette with it. Um, shoot. I don't know. I wanna say, I wanna say Greg Ferris again, but. But wasn't Linda Deal the artist this time? You know what? Um, Linda Deal does ring a bell. But for some reason, Pat McMahon, you know what? She might have did the play field. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, could be. Paul, I, I know, uh, I know Pat McMahon, I want to say Pat McMahon did the back glass. Hmm. Was that okay to have two artists do it like that? I think it worked out pretty good. I think it was a real nice looking package. Yeah, it was. You know, um, you know what? I'm not sure if Linda Deal did the play field. I really am. I'm not sure. I know her name's familiar. Hmm. Now, what about, um, did you work with Dan Forden, too? Dan who? Forden. Dan Forden. Doesn't ring a bell. There was Dan Langloy. But uh, he was another game designer. Okay. Um, Dan Forden. Is that... Um, yeah, he was like a mechanical engineer or something. You know what? The name rings a bell. I can't place him, though. Hmm. I'm getting old. <laughs> getting old. <laughs> All right, so then you got the big theme. you got the Gilligan Island theme. Tell me about that one. All right, well, let me tell you this. There was... Uh, when I was with Williams... They bought a play field from a guy named Dan Langloy. Okay? Dan Langloy um, sold them a design of a play field. And at that time, you know that island that rotates? Right. Okay. He had it as a brain. It was supposed to look like a brain. And I think the name of the game that he was going to call it was The Brain. So uh, um, at the time... Williams was looking for somebody to take over this design that they bought from Langley because I guess he was uh, he was in a bad way. He was sick, and I volunteered to step up and take the play field and do something with it. And we came up with uh, again. I keep mentioning this guy's name, Greg Ferris. He uh, came up with the theme of Gilligan's Island. He says, "What if we do a, you know, the old TV series Gilligan's Island?" And uh, I said, all right, well, let's see what we can do with it. And we th- threw some rules to the pinball machine, and we changed a couple shots and put the volcano in there and, um, you know, a couple other things there. And, and we put the package together as Gilligan's Island with a nice story behind it with the lava seltzer and the ingredients and the professor's formula and Gilligan's jetpack to take the, the, uh, the lava up to the volcano before it erupted. Now, how did you get the license for that? Was that easy? You know what? That's 
all these licenses are done usually by um, the marketing department. I think maybe at that time Roger Sharp was in there with the marketing, and um, they would go up there and and wheel and deal for the rights and how much they get them per game, stuff like that. I don't know how much, uh, and I think it would have been uh, Warner Brothers. Was that who? Uh, oh no. Yeah, I don't know if it was Warner Brothers or. Whoever owned the rights to Gilligan's Island, they, that's who they had to negotiate with. And then they called Bob Denver, you know, and uh, talk with him. Because he actually came out and shot the brochure for us with us, you know. Did he do the voice for you, too? Um, you know what? He did do some voiceovers. He did. Yes, he did. Hmm. Did any of the other people get involved? Um the other people, meaning? You know, like the, uh, the you know, Marianne and, and whatever her name was. No. Um, they did not. I guess, not that I'm aware of. I think, actually, um, they were trying to... Ginger, that's her name, Ginger. Yeah, Ginger, they didn't, she didn't want nothing to do with it, I was told. She was, she wanted to forget uh, all about Gilligan's Island at the time, but... You know, people have different thoughts in their head, and, and I think she finally got to realize that it was a good thing for her after all. And, you know, right, right. So I mean, you you didn't get the the only voice you got was Bob Denver as as little buddy, and and basically everybody else you just did you know got from like old TV shows or something. I think so. I'm pretty sure that's what they did. Hmm. But uh, don't quote me on all this because my memory ain't what it used to be. <laughs> Now, the artist, it looks like, for Gilligan was John Yowsey, is that right? Yowsey, right. Yep. Now, how was he to work with? Um, actually, I like, he's got a good style, and I like the style a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was pretty much Greg Ferris running the art department, and uh, pretty much coordinating a lot of the stuff with him. So, um, yeah, it was, you know, I didn't have too much, too much, um, input with it, but I know that uh, with the back class, when they had Marianne on, that little, Marianne on her little exercise bicycle or whatever she was on, right? they had to do a couple of different uh, versions of it because uh, Marianne's, uh, her chest was too big in one of the pictures. <laughs> they had to reduce it a little bit. Really? Yeah. Huh, usually you think it'd be the other way around. Yeah, well, I don't know if she took offense to it or... or just didn't want it, I guess, so they had to reduce them a little bit. I think it was her call. I don't think it was the marketing department. But yeah, you're right. A lot of things are usually enhanced. Right, right, right. Hmm. Now, uh, when we did the Riverboat Gambler, back to that one, when, uh, actually, I think that back class was done by uh, Pat McMahon, and he had one of the girls in the back with her silhouette where you can almost see through her dress. Actually, I think it shows pretty good on the brochure, but I think with the uh, the bad class, they had to tone it down a little bit. And who who dictated that kind of stuff? Who did what? Who dictated that kind of stuff where you had to tone it down? Our overall marketing department, sales department, that said, "Uh oh, we got to tone it down a little bit." Hmm. So now what? Um. On Gilligan's Island, were you pretty happy with how that game sold and how it was received? Yes, I really was. I thought it was a very nice package again. It's probably the best package I've done up to that point. So I, I, my goal was always to my next game to do better than the, the previous one. And 
most of the time that's what happened. So, were you happy with the sales? Yeah, I think that was right around four thousand. Right. You know, and uh, at that time it was good. And you're always hoping to do more. You're always hoping to get you know like a an eighteen thousand, twenty thousand run. You know, but uh, never happened for me. Never mm. happened for me. Summertime always seemed to be a, a slow time of the year, and uh, a lot of times that's when my games hit. So. Now, did you did you stay with Bally Williams? Well, you know what happened. Um, let's see. Back in, let's see. I think Gilligan was my last game there, and then in '91, I got called for the Chicago Fire Department for a test I took back in '85, and uh, became a Chicago fireman. And um, I went up to Confidez, and I told him I said I wanted to do both. Because of the great schedule the Chicago Fire Department has, where you, you work one day and you're off two, so theoretically you're just working two days a week as a fireman. And uh, I was actually at that time I was working on a a new pinball game, which was uh, pretty unique as far as I was concerned. I wanted see with the wide bodies out there at that time, mm-hmm. off and on. I never liked the way the wide bodies play. It just it was just too too much side-to-side motion too far so my uh, theory was I was going to do a horse race game with a pretty much a standard size play field in a wide body cabinet with a horse race track going around the outside which made it a wide body cool. you'd be hitting the different features on the pinball machine to advance your horse so, great idea how come it didn't get made um, well there was a couple of reasons one was because of the fact that actually Williams told me that um, they weren't going to let me do both. I had to make a decision either um, either design pinball machines or or become a fireman. And they had a very good reason. Their reason was, you know, um, the job of the game designer is to get this game ready so they could keep the production lines running downstairs. You know, they keep the factory open. And if something happened where I did get hurt at a fire and I wasn't able to work, there would be a time where they might have to shut down the factory. And that made sense. I never thought about it that way, you know. Being a fireman can be a pretty dangerous job at times. Right. So uh, what they let me do is um, go through the academy, okay, at the fire department, Chicago Fire Department, and they would still keep me on. And I had a a team of... um, people that I was working with, my mechanical engineer, my artist, my sound guy, programmer. And what happened is they said that they would actually come in in the evenings with me and work at night while I was still going through the academy. And so that, I I thought that was really nice of them guys, you know, to do that. Hmm. But they did that, so, um, so Williams kept me on as long as I was in the academy. But once I graduated from the academy, then they said that, um, you know, they weren't going to do that any longer. Which was understandable. Well, were you working on the horse race game at that time? Yes, I was. And I had uh, Greg Tasted as my mechanical engineer, and he was working uh, pretty good with the uh, racetrack. But, you know, at that time, again, the the industry was a little weak, and it looked like this game was going to be too expensive to uh, produce with the racetrack and the horse race mechanism. Hmm. So it pretty much got kiboshed. And it really, I didn't get far enough along with it to convince.
convince them to keep going with it. Huh. Did it did it get anywhere where it was playable? Um, you know what? Um, the the racetrack was in a um um a molding stage where it was like a, a handmade track, and it worked somewhat, but um, you know we weren't really thrilled with it yet. We weren't thrilled with it. So yes, we were able to shoot it around a little bit, but nothing where you could have went to production with it. And who was helping you with the software? Um, let me think. Uh, trying to think who the um, programmers were over there. Dwight Sullivan was a programmer. Maybe Boone? Um, Boone, yeah, Boone was, at that time, he was pretty much Steve Ritchie's only uh, guy. Um, John Hay, was John Hay there? John Hay was there. Was he a sound guy or was he a programmer? I, I don't know. I think he was sound. I think he was a sound guy. Because I think he did some of the sounds on Mousen for me. Hmm. I think he was my sound guy on Mousen. Um, then there was another guy, um, I think his name was Jim Strapolis, or hmm. You know what? I, I can't remember. Isn't it something? Well, I guess we are looking at 17 years ago. <laughs> so now you stayed with the fire department and did you ever come back to do any more pinball well you know what uh, I'm still with the fire department and back in 93 I got a call from um, I think his name was Mark Coldabella and uh, he was working for a company named GameStar now and he was asking me if I was interested in uh, designing again and I said sure I said as long as you realize I'm a fireman too you know I'm not going to give up being a Chicago fireman to just design games he says oh no we got no problem with that so it worked out great for a while so from I want to say 93 to 93, 94 a couple years I was over at uh, GameStar and I designed a redemption piece called um, Goofy Hoops and we did a redemption piece. It was actually my, uh, they hired me as a pinball game designer. They wanted to do pinball. But since this company was still um, trying to get its foot in the door, um, they took uh, my back box feature. It was going to be a back box feature in a pinball game. And we decided to run with it just as a redemption piece. What do you mean back box feature? Well, this was a, uh, a pachinko-style um, back box with a picture like a, a ball the size of a foosball, plastic ball. Mm -hmm. And it would launch a ball up on the top, and then it would go down these little uh, pachinko-tile pins, and you'd have a basketball net that slid side to side in the back box, and you'd try to catch that basketball as it came down. Hmm. So, so we ended up going with that as a redemption piece so we could make some money for the company and... Did it work out okay? Uh, yeah, actually, it was very exciting at the show, and uh, everybody really liked this game. My objective with it for that game was, though, uh, since we decided to go with a redemption piece, I kind of wanted it to go as a, uh, a bar piece, so you could put this in all the local bar establishments, and then you got your guys, you know, or girls at the bar, and you could uh, 
go up to the machine and pretty much say, okay, come on, let's go, let's play. Next loser buys the next round, you know. But uh, they didn't put them in the bars. They ended up putting them just in these little, uh, you know, ticket redemption places, the Chuck E. Cheese's and stuff like that, where you can right. win little prizes and toys. Um, it did fairly well. well. I think the company made some good money. Um, I don't know how many games they made, though. Probably just probably just a little over 1,000, maybe 1,200, 1,500 games. Was that good for redemption? At that time, yeah, because it was a lot, in, a lot more inexpensive to make. Now, how long did you stay with GameStar? Let's see. I was with GameStar till I want to say, two years, or almost two years. Maybe 93 to 94, out of 94. And now, why did you why did you get out of GameStar? You know what? I actually got I got fired over there. <laughs> I got fired at GameStar, or let go, whichever way, whatever sounds better. Yeah. Well, why? Why? What happened? Well, I had a run in with uh, Python Angelo, Python Angelo, and uh, Mark Ritchie was actually um, in charge of the. Uh, how do you say? Uh, he was probably in charge of the. Um, the game designing area. Well, because GameStar became Capcom Pinball. Right, right. And actually, the Goofy Hoops was sold underneath the Romstar name because that was their distributor, I guess. Right. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I, uh, I, me and Python had a run-in, and and then uh, Mark Ritchie and Python, um, like I said, they were like a team, so... I got let go. Now, what was the issue with Python? Well, Python was one of these guys that always wanted to take credit for everything, even though credit wasn't due to him. And if you didn't think along his lines, um, we were thinking the long way. So we kind of just banged heads. Hmm. One of those things. Now, were you sorry that that happened, or was it no big deal because you had the fire department gig? Sorry that, uh, that I got let go from there because... I wanted to really do another pinball machine there, and I was actually under contract there. And, um, you know, I just, it was one of those things where you, you, you've had high hopes, and I've seen nothing but dollar signs and potential over there. So, yeah, I was very uh, sad to be let go over there. <laughs> well, at the time, were they, were they working on the start of the pinball company? Yes. Yes. And that's what Richie and Python were basically doing, right? Yeah, well, we were all doing. I mean, at that time that I was let go, I was working on a pinball machine also. But Oh. Yeah. Now, what was the game you were working on? Um, you know what? We were trying to get different licenses. We were trying to get the... Actually, I think at the time we were trying to get the Mission Impossible license. Huh. Yeah. Did you get very far with that? Um... Uh, uh, to me, it isn't far unless you got a, an up and working model, you know. And so I'd have to say no, didn't get too far with it. I had a lot of stuff on drawings, but uh, but we didn't get much farther. Hmm. He, he does another thing. Python wanted to keep changing the theme, so he wanted to do some kind of circus theme. He's he's big on circus things, and I just wasn't. Uh, didn't want to go around that line. Well, yeah, he did that circus game. Um, 
you know, at Williams that they spent, you know, millions of dollars to develop. And, you know, right when he was leaving Williams and, and, and coming over to Capcom, um, you know, they, they spent, at Pinball Circus, they spent a ton of money on him, and it never really got going. Yeah, and you know what? There was a lot of tension between this company and Williams. They, all of a sudden, they were afraid to do things because uh, Mark Ritchie had a clause in his contract saying he couldn't do any pinball for a certain amount of time once he left. And it was just a little hectic over there when it came to, uh, um, you know, getting some of the Williams guys over by us. It's kind of a little nerve-wracking. So after after you got out of you know GameStar, Romstar, Capcom, whatever you want to call it, you, you haven't been involved in pinball since then. Oh no! After I left, uh, I should say after after I got fired from over there. Shortly later, a few months later, I got a call from Joe Camacow over at uh, Sega Pinball at the time. Oh! And uh, he was all excited, and he wanted to hire me as a game designer for them. So I went over there. And how and how did that work out? It worked out great for a short period of time. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it was that pinball industry, you know, they're starting to lose money and and I didn't have a contract over there. Um and after I think it after my I did uh Goldeneye. Gold, Gold yeah. 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 And after that came um it was time for more layoffs at that company and I was one of the guys that got laid off. Now, I, I like GoldenEye. I thought that was a pretty well-done game. Yeah, I like it, too. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, you know, that one shot where you hit that satellite dish, and, you know, it, it kind of seems goofy, but the way it catches it and then feeds the ball, I just thought it was really neat. Thanks. Yeah. Was that your idea? You know what? Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think here. Actually, you know what we did? We designed the play field again. And we had to try to do these uh, certain features. I know Kamikow had some input on the game, of course. Um, yeah, what was it like working for him? Joe's a good guy. Very smart man. Very smart man. He's the one that brought a lot of licenses into pinball, you know? Right. Yeah, Hollywood Joe. He that, I think that was the part he liked the most. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Now, did you get to meet any of the 007 people? No, I did not. I know he went to a uh, special showing somewhere, Joe, and he met all of them. And he actually brought me back, I think, a um, a scorecard signed from signed by Pierce. And uh, they uh, they were really good to me over there. He had a uh, special pinball machine uh, made for me, and even got a little metal plaque, you know, that uh, for the game saying um, this. Uh, GoldenEye 007 Sega Pinball Machine made especially for Ward Pemberton, you know. Like I said, he was uh, was a very very good guy. Took good care of me. It sounded like kind of a classy guy to work for. Yeah, he was. He was. Hmm. He was. Now, were you um, uh, ever going to, you know, try and get back into the industry after that? You know what? There's not... That industry window is very, very small right now. Yeah. (laughs) It's very, very small. I mean, who's just making it now? It's just uh, Stern, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, to be honest with you, it doesn't seem too feasible right now. Hmm. Now, was there anything in GoldenEye that, you know, you tried to put in that got costed out of that game? Oh, yeah. There was. I'm just trying to figure out what it was. 
And that was Paul Ferris on the artwork there. Paul Ferris did the artwork, right. That was one of those uh, new type of play fields. What was it, like a photo or something? Yeah, you mean like the the four-color process? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Paul was kind of like pushing that, pushing that technology. Yeah, well, he was working with it, you know. It's more. You're right, Paul, uh, the old veteran artist for pinball, there, Mr. Paragon himself, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, he was big on this four color process. He thought it was the way to go. Right. You know, I, it, and I guess they were doing. You know, obviously they're doing the translites that way. But you know, the playfields. They, I don't know. It didn't. It didn't do look quite as good to me personally. I, I agree with you. The only thing positive about it is that they last, or they were hoping to last longer and stay cleaner. You know, where it wouldn't wear off as fast with the diamond plate and all this other stuff over it. Right. Um, but yeah, I know what you're saying. You know what? I think the only thing is that the people got to look a little bit more real, realistic with that type of uh, process. Right, less cartoonish looking. Right. But no, I agree. Some of the old stuff looks really nice, you know. So you know that's you. You're still a fireman, and and were you doing fireman and working at Sega? They had no problems with that. Yes, yeah. That's why it was. I said these guys took care of me. You know, that was a nice little uh, gig I had going. Same thing with GameStar, and then when I went to uh, to Sega, again, that's another one of the reasons why it's easier to let me look, let me go than somebody else because here I am, you know. Still working, still have a job somewhere, and uh, it's a less guilty feeling, which is totally understandable, you know. Now, how was the company, uh, you know, philosophy and, and, and company, you know, just in general, you know, when you were at, like, say, Williams compared to uh, GameStar compared to Sega, did they have, like, you know, different, you know, philosophies and work environments? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um you know, again, uh, Bally was a great, great company. Um, Williams was a great company. Um, they were all really good companies, but GameStar was uh, the Japanese company, okay? They were owned by the Japanese. And they set up this really nice building for us, and they had uh, actually a fitness room for us where you had weights and showers. And it was, uh, that's why I said it was pretty exciting. Um, when I was and I was actually considered one of the top designers over there because they didn't really have anybody else yet. You know, they were still working to to get Mark Ritchie. He had a promise in there, but he had to get out of his contract before he could design anything. And then he had Python come over, which um, he wanted to start designing and doing the artwork. So that's why you say, you know what? Um, that's where the tension came, and and um, and that's why I got let go over there. But uh, a lot of good opportunities out there at, at one time or another, you know. Right. Right. No regrets then, huh? No, no regrets. You know, I'm just, thank God I'm a Chicago fireman now and not out there looking for jobs, you know. Right. Right. Well, how much? How many more years do you have doing the fireman gig? Well, I figure if i got about eight years left and then I can retire from there. Well, you still got some time. I mean, any good fire stories? Oh, yeah. I've almost been killed a few times, but we won't get into that. <laughs> <laughs> and not by Python either, right? What's that? And not killed by Python either. Right, right. Not killed by Python. Right, right. Yeah, no, the fire department's a very uh, gratifying self. Um, you know, it's a very, it makes you feel good about yourself that you can help somebody else when time of need, you know. 
Right. And it's always a good feeling to get on that rig and hearing the air horn and the sirens going on. You don't know what's on the other end yet, you know. <laughs> All right, cool. Is there anything you want to add, Ward? I think that's about it. Just, you know, i, I got to thank everybody that helped me in that industry because it really was a, uh, a team effort, you know, from the uh, artist to the, you know, the programmer and the sound guy and the mechanical guy. Everybody made it work for me, so appreciate all their, their help, you know. Well, I appreciate you talking to us. Uh, it was good. I'm glad you were able to take time because I know your schedule is kind of hectic. It's not a hectic thing. It's just, you know what, it's just... It's hard to talk about pinball now because it seems like it was such a long time ago and you don't know how much you remember and you know what you forgot and stuff like that. No, I think you did good. All right, well, thanks a lot, Clay. I'd like to thank Ward Pemberton for coming on TopCast tonight. Really do appreciate his time and, uh, and his great design stories. And I hope you all come back and hear us again on another episode of TopCast, the Internet Pinball Radio Show.